Welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Evening. Hello, Monsignor. Good to join us here from, are you up at the cabin or are you at Minneapolis? I, I'm in uh, St. Paul now. St. Paul, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, Today we we say goodbye to our old family cabin. It was sold, so. Oh, that's uh, tough. That's yeah. hard. I know how, how hard that is. I, one of my favorite TV shows is a show called Main Cabin Masters. It's one of, and it's, oh, yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I love show? watching yeah. that family take an old cabin in the middle of Maine and then just rebuild it and preserve it. It's so cool. I think every single episode I watch, I say, I want that cabin. I want that cabin. I want that cabin. You know, but uh, so we, we mourn. We offer it up, right, for the we loss of We offer it up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. We can't take these things with us. So. Well, <laughs> that's that's so true, and I, it's funny you mentioned that because as we study the history of the church, sometimes some of the things that that uh, have become so valuable and essential in the lives of Catholics are things that we don't take with us. They they stay here. They aren't the essence. They are the essence of what's true and what's important and what's beautiful and and uh, of our faith. We continue our study of against heresies. And we are going to, today, focus on Book 4, Chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17 uh, begins on 352, and uh, so we're going to, we're going to go 352 through 361. Now, as Monsignor and I were talking about beforehand, there's so much in this great section. It really is strong. I've got almost every line memorized, I mean, underlined. And what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to cover four overview points for this section. I would love to just let's read through it, uh, but we, we won't have time to do that. I'm going to, what I'd like to do is four overview points and then turn it over to Monsignor, because he has five sections that he's selected to focus on the, the Eucharist in Irenaeus. And so, does that sound good, Monsignor? That sounds great. Thank you. Uh -huh. Now, I don't want this to be a monologue, uh, so I'm going to go through these four ideas that kind of jumped out at me as I read this. How do you summarize this wonderful section? Uh, the point that Irenaeus is trying to make here, and just four thoughts, all right? Mm -hmm. and, and the first is, kind of stepping back a bit, again, it's why I get ex so excited about reading Irenaeus, is because, in, in a way, his presentation of the truth of the apostolic deposit of faith, that he is strongly encouraging his readers and listeners to honor and to hold to is at a time in the history of the church that you might say is before 
the development that Newman struggled with and then defined in his essay. If you will, what we're looking at is in a time of the church when some might argue that all Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Anglicans at least would agree on. We're at, we're at a time when we're all on the same page. That's right. We used to call that the undivided church in, when I was an Anglican. And, and that's what's represented in Irenaeus. So there are things that have become distinctive of Roman Catholicism, things that have become distinctive of Eastern Orthodox, and maybe things that are distinctive of, of Anglicanism, though, Monsignor, I've, I've never been as familiar with Anglicanism because of my own Protestant background, mm. that, that don't show up in Irenaeus. In fact, there are some things that might even seem contradictory, and you'll wonder, well, you know, uh, was Irenaeus heretical, or uh, was he being radical, or, or it's more that, that because certain battles hadn't arisen in the church yet, that certain issues weren't, weren't confronted, yeah. right? And uh, I think your observation is really well taken. That point is really well made, Marcus, um, that, that Irenaeus um, seems to be, he has that feeling of pre being pre-development, if you, yeah. if you will. And I w you think about um, the history of Irenaean scholarship. Um, he was neglected. I think it's fair to say Irenaeus was um, neglected in Catholic thought for quite a while. And one of the things that really brought him back were the, was the work of the Resourcement theologians before Vatican II. They wanted to go back and, and really seriously look at these early Christian texts again. And that's where we that's where the flowering of, of modern Irenaean scholarship um, is really to be found. I would I, I've been so moved by what I've read in this book. Um, when I on my journey to the church, Monsignor, and I think this I, I can't answer for you. I read Irenaeus, but it was snippets, yeah. apologetic snippets in a book like Jurgens or something. I didn't read the yeah. whole book. And so I had a, a couple of quotes here and there underlined, highlighted. But it wasn't until I bought this copy of Keeble's translation and read it cover to cover now a couple of times that I'm, I'm every time I read it, I'm overwhelmed. And I believe that if one is to appreciate the post-development church, one needs to read how it is built on the pre-development church. That the interpretation of the post-development church has to be seen, like, for example, understanding the Eucharist in its through transubstantiation. We have to see that it's built on the presumptions of the pre-development church. It doesn't negate the pre-development church. It doesn't negate Ignatius or Justin or Irenaeus or, or, or Cyprian. It doesn't negate that just because they didn't use the word transubstantiation. But there's a trajectory. And that's what I think Newman was trying to get at mm -hmm. as he tried to make the transition from the Un, when undivided church to 
the divided world of the 19th century in which he lived. There has to be this continuity, which Pope Benedict yeah. insisted on. Yeah, that's right. That's a great point. And so, so to me, reading Irenaeus, he didn't, he didn't anticipate even Constantine coming along. No, certainly not. Or, or the Consul of Nicaea. We say the creed every Sunday. He had, he didn't have that. He had the, we believe he may have had the Apostles' Creed, at least the, the, the guts of it yeah. were there. Yeah, no, he wasn't looking forward to that. Well, as we'll see in Book Five, he was looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Yep, exactly. Imminently. All right. So that's one point. Second point is that this section, you know, and if I'm wrong, uh, Monsignor, you've got your red hat there, so I know that I'm speaking to someone <laughs> yeah. of ecclesial authority here. Um, so if I'm wrong, correct me, but uh, Irenaeus was not a systematic theologian. He's, you know, he's addressing a, a battle. He's helping his audience and his fellow bishops and priests and, and laity fight the battle of their world that they're going through. So often his his ideas flow, as opposed to uh, you know our modern way of having bullet points. So chapters seventeen and eighteen are a part of his flowing of thought in his argument, and the context therefore is in the idea of explaining the transition from the servile state to the filial state. The servile, the precepts of the servile law, which he talked, we talked about last week, which were added on to the basic natural precepts of the law, the Ten Commandments. We had the servile state added on all these regulations of sacrifice and feasts and and uh, 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 what's the the way that Paul describes it? You know, the the sun and the moon and all the different you know the the, the things that regulated our lives that had been added on to the to the Israel because of their disobedience. That those were ended. And this the section we're in is based on his discussion about that. And if you will, if you go to page um, 351 in section chap, book 416, section 5, you'll see that this is the transition. He says, but as to the precepts of the servile state, he enjoined them by Moses exclusive to the people as suited to their instruction. Okay, so they needed this. Then he goes on, these things, in the next paragraph, these things then, which were given them unto bondage, and for a sign he hath cut off by a new testament of liberty. All right. Now, if you jump over to the end of that uh, section on page 352, you go down a bit after the quote from Matthew and Isaiah, the quote from Matthew, he says, to make us aware that we are to give account unto God, not of our deeds only as slaves, but also of our words and thoughts, even as we have received power to be free, whereby man is 
more thoroughly tr tried whether he reverences and fears and loves the Lord. So we have this transition. We have this transition in, in mm -hmm. from the servile state and all those regulations and rules that even the Pharisees are having a hard time, so they're coming up with their own set of new rules. And Jesus says that you've heard it said, now, now I say unto you, and then he demonstrates that it's not just the doing or the not doing, it's the attitudes and the desires. That's what he's talking about here. So if you have this transition, then the question is um, that what about sacrifice? What about all those sacrifices? If they're a part of that which was added on, what about in the new life? Mm -hmm. If those were a part of the servile state and now we're free from that, what about sacrifice? And if you look at the bottom of page 354, section 3 of 17, there's this one simple comment, for the people had these not as the principal thing, but by way of consequence. And that's in the midst of this whole discussion about sacrifice. So all those sacrifices added on, not as the principal thing, but by way of consequence. So does that mean that in the new life, we throw a sacrifice out completely? Or is it just all the encumbrances of the way that have been imposed as a consequence of their life? All right? Which brings me to the th third point, which to me is the theme of this section. Again, Monson, you jump in there with your red hat if I'm going off base here. Okay. No. Okay. All right. Um, the third, which to me is the theme, which is the title of this, uh, of this episode, is the true sacrifice. That's, to me, the theme of this section, and you see it in section 2 of chapter 17 on the bottom of page 353, in which Irenaeus says, For not through emotion as a man, according to the bold saying of many, did he put from him the sacrifices, but in pity of their blindness, and giving an intimation of the true sacrifice, which those who offer will appease God to the receiving of life from him. The phrase, the true sacrifice. But what is the true sacrifice that he's addressing? And I know we've mentioned this earlier in our studies, Monsignor, but I continually am overwhelmed by Irenaeus's uh, grasp of Scripture because I know of no other source that so brings together all the Scriptures, old and new, that deal with this topic of what is a true sacrifice. 
And his emphasis is simply all the all the prophetic verses, all the Psalms, uh, Samuel, um, and then to the New Testament. And to me, the, the scripture that is most telling here is on page 356 at the top, which is section 17.4. And this, to me, summarizes, and like I said, every quote that's there in the Bible is in this section. But here he summarizes, which to me is is one of the most significant quotes, not just in Irenaeus, but in the New Testament. And that is, it says this, from all which it is plain that God sought not of them sacrifices and burnt offerings, but faith and obedience and righteousness for their salvation. And what does he base this on? He says, as in Hosea, the prophet God, teaching them his will, said, I will have mercy rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God above burnt offerings. Yes, and our Lord gave them the same admonition, saying, For if we had known what this is, I will have mercy and not sacrifice we would never have condemned the fruitless. As once giving testimony to the prophets that they preached the truth and convicting them of folly which came by their own faith. What is the true sacrifice? Our Lord says the true sacrifice is faith, obedience, and righteousness. Not the sacrifices themselves. Because the sacrifices themselves are empty if they come from hearts that are impure. If you drop down to the bottom of the page where it gets, he's quoting the prophet Malachi, in which he says, My pleasure is not in you, saith the Lord Almighty, and I will not receive sacrifices at your hands far from the rising of the sun until the going down my name is glorified among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered unto my name, and a pure, pure sacrifice for my name is given among the Gentiles. Later he talks about this idea of the pureness, the pureness. In another place he talks about in uh, section, in book chapter 18, section 3, he goes through those verses about, um, uh, from Matthew, about, for ye are like unto whitened sepulchres, for without the sepulchre appeareth beautiful, for without the sepulchre appeareth beautiful, but within it is full of dead man's bones and of all uncleanness. So also ye indeed outwardly appear unto men as righteous, but within ye are full of wickedness and hypocrisy. For a while in outward show they were thought to offer rightly, they had in themselves a jealousy like Cain's. So this idea, like a sacrifice, just because we do it, if our heart isn't right, we've missed the point. You know, I I thought a, a wonderful... Um way to sum it up, that point up, is if you go over to page 358 um, in uh, section 3. Yes. Um, he, 
he speaks about the tithe here. Yes. Um, and therefore, while they had the tenths of their goods consecrated, those on the other hand who have received freedom assign all that they themselves have to the uses of the Lord, cheerfully and freely giving them, not in lesser proportions only. Um, and I thought that that's a wonderful way to illustrate the, the point. Um, when I was a when I was a pastor of a congregation, I has, used to have to always do those, you know, tithing letters. Oh. <laughs> and we were always trying, I mean, that we were always trying to get everybody to, you know, commit to a biblical tithe, we called it. Um, well, that only gets us to the servile state, <laughs> if you will. Um, but what the whole point of what you're saying, I think, is that um, in the servile state, people do these things because they're told they have to do them. Yeah. And in the in in the in the law of liberty, we want to out of love, yeah. and and we don't hold anything back from the Lord. Yeah, that's. I just thought, just thinking about the ten percent tithe well, is a good way to look at this. And we. We can, mea culpa, get caught up in the same thing today. The doing of the sacramental economy, as it's yes. called, the going to Mass, the being baptized, confirmed, going to confession, the sacrament of marriage, sacrament of orders, uh, even even last rites, if you will, yeah. you know, as if it's some kind of magical act separated from what's going on in our heart, going on in our lives. What's going on in our conscience? It's what's going on in our conscience that makes a, a, a sacrifice, a sacrament, worthy. Yeah, you know, I think um, it's worth, this is a controversial point, I admit it, but when, you know, when you're dealing with um, the faithful and helping them prepare to make their confession, a lot of them use as their examination of conscience the Ten Commandments. Hmm. And then they'll come, they come into the confessional with this list. I'm okay on this one. I'm okay on this one. Well, I messed up on this one a little bit. And they went down the list. And um, one wants to say to them, let's take the two greatest commandments, yep. um, love of the Lord and the love of your fellow man. Let's start there um because otherwise it just feels so mechanical yeah yeah well and again there's that statement by our lord in luke that says unless you renounce everything you can't be my disciple i mean how many people come into the confessional saying well i didn't do that very well i mean yeah that's all that's the all yeah. that Irenaeus yeah. is talking about here the all the all it's all of God. He's our creator. Everything we have came from him. Are we grateful? Are we thankful? It's all there. There's a statement on the bottom of page 359 in section, I think that's still in section 3 of, of 18, in which he says, it follows that sacrifices sanctify not a man, mm. for God needs not sacrifice. But the conscience of him who offers sacrifices sanctifies the sacrifice, being pure and causes God to accept it 
as from a friend. That is a powerful sentence. Yes, it is. That is a powerful sentence. It is very much so. And so, to me, that applies to the sacramental life, because that's the trajectory of the development of what grew into the sacrificial, sacramental life of the church, which hasn't really quite developed yet during the time of Irenaeus. But he's saying ahead of time, guys, hey, it's not the sacrament that sanctifies a man, but the conscience of him who offers it makes the difference. And the church will struggle with the meaning of that. Yes. Yeah. Right? The relationship of a, a good or bad oh, sure. priest on whether that sacrament is valid or not will become yeah. an issue in the next hundred years yeah. after this. Now, one thing from a turn over to you that jumped out at me in this is this issue of the true sacrifice. And uh, there's, there's an issue that I don't think would have even been on the consciousness of Irenaeus when he wrote this that has become a bigger issue to us today. And again, this is the issue of sacrifice. And, um, and to me, one of the best books that deal with this is an out-of-print book, but you can get the PDF on, on the internet, and it's a book called Saint Worship, The Worship of Mary of all provocative titles, written by a man by the name of Orestus Brownson, who was a, a very famous, well-known American convert to the Catholic Church. He converted to the Church in the mid-19th century. He was, he was a part of the, the Emerson Thoreau group of people in the, in the Boston uh, Enlightenment time. Uh, but he wrote this book, and the reason he wrote this book, even with a provocative title, is that most non-Catholic Christians, not most, but let's say a majority of non-Catholic Christians, think we Catholics worship saints, think we worship Mary. Why do they think we worship Mary? Well, because we pray to them. We pray, ask Our Lady for her intercession. We pray to Joseph for his intercession. We pray to St. Anthony to help us find our keys, you know, whatever it is, but we're asking for their assistance. To a non-Catholic Christian, well, that's worship. Well, why is it worship? To be praying to them. And Orestes Bronson makes a very important point that, to me, applies to what we're reading in Irenaeus. He makes the point that universally, Anthropologists have demonstrated that every single civilization that's ever lived that has worship, a part of that worship is sacrifice. Worship always involves sacrifice. You cannot have a religion without sacrifice. That's the way it was originally. That would have been at the time of Irenaeus. All the pagan groups have, they have sacrifice. The question is, is it a true sacrifice or not? That's the issue. But they all have sacrifice. And so what happened in the Reformation was that the Reformers rejected the Lord's Supper as sacrifice. They rejected it. And so all of a sudden you have kind of a new religion, if you will. I'm being a little simplistic here, maybe even a little caricaturing. But we have a new religion that doesn't have sacrifice. So what's basic Protestant worship? 
prayer and praise, prayer and praise, but no sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is a, a reminder, a symbol, not sacrifice. So if, if worship in the eyes of our separated brethren is prayer and praise, it's certainly understandable why they think we're worshiping saints when we, when we pray to them. But the church distinctly says it is a heresy to sacrifice to a saint. And we don't do that because we don't worship them. Irenaeus would have presumed that sacrifice unquestionably was a part of religion, a part of worship. So in the transition from the servile state to the filial state, what about sacrifice? And to me, that brings us why he comes into the issue of describing the new oblation sacrifice as Eucharist. Monsignor, I'll pass it over to you. Well, if you well, will. well thanks, Marcus. And just to respond to what you just said, um, the church has always made um, a distinction between worship and veneration. So worship only is offered to the Blessed Trinity. And veneration is appropriate uh, to show the saints, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. We see this, this gets really worked out in the iconoclastic controversy a few centuries down the road. Um, where the Protestants of the day tried to get rid of the icons in the churches. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Yeah, in fact, if, if you get this book online, it, it, he begins by dealing with this issue of the term worship and what it means and where it comes from. The word is from Anglo-Saxon, worth, scrip, which means simply the state or condition of being worthy of honor, respect, or dignity. And so he talks about that to show that we have some we're using a word here that we have different understandings. But he gets to this very issue that worship at its core involves sacrifice. And so if we're going into this new filial state with God, is there a sacrifice? Well, Aaron Answer said, of course, that's not the issue. But what is it? And so that's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, Marcus. Um yeah, and then to pick up on that point about the true sacrifice, of course, um, he's going to be dealing with the Eucharist now. And if we begin with by turning to page 356, section 5, what, what I wanted to do is point out a few points here that have become very important in uh, Catholic theology of, about, the, about the nature of the Eucharist, Eucharistic sacrifice. Um, First of all, um, we have this explicit statement, basically, that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. So in section five, right in the middle of page 356, um, yea, and giving counsel to his disciples to offer unto God the first fruits of his creation, not as though he were in want, but in order that themselves might be neither unfruitful nor ungrateful, he took that which is part of creation, that is, bread, and gave thanks, saying, this is my body. And the cup likewise, which is of that creation, which appertains unto us, he professed to be his own blood, and taught men 
the new oblation, the new sacrifice, the New Testament, which the church receiving from the apostles offers unto God in the whole world. And, and he bases this uh, on a prophecy in Malachi um, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, um, that this sacrifice, this new perfect sacrifice, well, Mal Malachi speaks of it being offered by the Gentiles, but the idea is that it's a universal sacrifice offered for and by the people all over the world. It's not restricted to um, to, to the Jewish um, nation, if you will. Um, so I just, I, that one jumped out at me um, as a very simple early statement saying the Eucharist is a sacrifice. We, we were talking about yep. how um, the reformers seem to have missed that point somehow. Um, and um, and they, he hasn't gotten into, you know, how is it a sacrifice or, um, you know, when we eat the body of, of our Lord in the Eucharist, which body is it? Yeah. Uh, in the body that's walking around in Israel, is it the body on the cross? Uh, before he dies or after he dies or the resurrected body. You know, that's, that's not the issue yet. We take Jesus at his word. It's his body. It's him. Yeah, and, you know, I just, I, I can't resist, but I just love to remem remember something of my old life and telling a story. Those of our um, participants who come from an Anglican background will readily recognize this. The Anglican Church has all over the board on this question. You know, some will say, yes, it is a real sacrifice, and others say, no, 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 it's just a mere memorial. Um, and I, I can remember having an assistant um, years ago when I was a parish priest. Um, I almost fell off my chair that morning. He was, he was preaching about the Eucharist, and he said, it's just a mere remembrance. It's like handing out high school yearbook pictures. Um, you give them to your friends so they'll remember you later in life. <laughs> you know, I don't know how we ever got into that um, yeah. thing. Well, sadly, kind of like going on what I mentioned earlier with Bronson was dealing with is that when, when the idea of sacrifice and all the sacrificial language was removed from liturgy in the Reformation, and then from that you have the Lutheran worship, the Lutheran sacraments, and you have John Calvin and Zwingli's symbolic view, and then it goes from there to the Anabaptists, and then what's happened in the 500 years, that we treat the Lord's Supper as if it's nothing more than. Yeah. I mean, that phrase, it's as if it's nothing more than, the way we treat Non-Catholic Christians will treat Mary yeah. as that she's nothing more than a woman that just happened to be walking along, and and a spirit says, "Well, hey, how about you?" You know, as if she said no, then they'd find another woman. Just nothing more. Almost treating Mary, Marilyn, like she, mm -hmm. Mary, as if she was nothing more than a womb that God used, mm -hmm. and then cast her aside. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, 
But again, that and, phrase, the new oblation of the New Testament. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously he doesn't use the language of the of the Middle Ages about transubstantiation, but but clearly he understands that Christ is really present in in this sacrifice. Um, uh, he makes that those gifts, his body and his blood, and Irenaeus is very clear on that. That happens in the Eucharist. So um, then there's a, of course we have this very long section to follow. Um, in on you pointed out on page. 359 um, oh yes uh-huh. already about the about the question of conscience yes the conscience of him who offers is what sanctifies the sacrifice and I I just made a note here too this is this is something probably that we you know should reflect on from time to time um, do we objectify the Eucharist so much that we lose sight of how important it is to have that inward disposition. That inner disposition is critical for um, for validity, I guess, if you'd say. I, I was going to re- respond. You mentioned uh, how, um, you know, during the Donatus period, that Augustine... Uh, had to make the point against the Donatists that um, baptism done at the hands of somebody, a priest who is unworthy, is still valid. The Eucharist celebrated at the hands of an unworthy priest is is still valid. His point is the effects of that can't be received by um, by the the individual faithful if his or her disposition is is not there if it's not proper. Um, so yeah. it really happens, but if it's going to have any impact on our lives, we have to have this inward disposition of faith. Um, yeah, and I think we see that. We see that's what he's arguing here, I think. It's, it's like some people presuming that they're going to be saved because I was baptized 50 years ago. Yeah. But if we haven't lived a life of faithfulness, then the yeah. graces of that that baptism didn't make a difference. Right. Well, St. Augustine said that hell is going to be full of baptized people. Yeah. yeah. I think there were a few in Dante's Inferno, too, you know, a, a number of them, even with, with hats like the one sitting next to you there. Yeah, there may be even one or two popes in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the third point I wanted to make um, is on page 360. Um and we are in section four, and the, this is his argument about who is able to validly offer this pure sacrifice of, of the Eucharist. And he, he asks the question, and he says, well, first of all, um, the Jewish sacrifices are invalid because the people have have rejected Christ. Um, okay, I'll just read this passage here. Okay, okay. This offering the church alone offers pure unto the creator, presenting it unto him with thanksgiving from the things which he has made. But the Jews offer it not 
for their hands are full of blood, for they have not received the word which is offered unto God. Well, that's obvious. But then he goes on to say, nor have yet any of the congregations of the heretics, for some of them who say that there is another father besides the creator in offering unto him the things which appertain to our creation, make him out desirous of that which is another and covetous of another's goods. You know, that's a a long sentence, but his basic argument is if you reject the God who created the world, the physical world, but then use the gifts of bread and wine, which are from him, in order to worship a God that is above it all. Um, he says, that's, you know, what's the point of that? I mean, that's invalid. And then he goes on there to say, um, there are those that say that the things which pertain to us were made through decay and ignorance and passion, sin against their own father in offering to him the fruits of ignorance, passion, and decay, rather insulting than giving him thanks. Well, these are, again, the Gnostics um, using Eucharistic gifts from a creation which they have, they reject as a, a decay. Yeah. You know, yeah. Okay, and then... Well, the next the sentence, do you, do you, yeah. you want to go to that one already? Um, you know, go ahead. Well, we're, he, okay, I'm going to be moving to five next. Yeah. Well, I think the next Section sentence, five. and how can they be assured that the bread whereon thanks have been given is the body of their Lord and the cup that of his blood, if they do not acknowledge him, the son of the creator of the world? Yeah. And that's just a conclusion, a trajectory. That's a conclusion of it, right. And, and That's right. Because how can... How can they be, how can Christ identify with um, gifts of bread and wine that come from a lesser God, if you will? Now, now I would be so bold to put in here that he's, he, there's nowhere in here does he say that a valid, it's valid or not whether the man doing it was ordained correctly. You know, my point is that that hasn't come up yet. Has, yeah. Though, the, though I think we've had enough times in already in Irenaeus where um, the people that we can count on to be authentic, to the apostolic tradition, there's they're in a lineage. Yeah, and that's the apostolic succession hasn't taken on some of the form and matter that will develop. The apostolic yeah, succession yeah, right. has to do with are they faithfully holding to the truth that has been passed on from Jesus to his apostles and then through the apostolic churches. That is the issue. And those are the that it's the belief the apostolic truth that is the pillar and bulwark of the church, he says, in I think in book three, that is the criteria for whether it's an authentic sacrament or not. And that's where he's saying, 
how could it be a true if how could it be a true sacrament if they do not acknowledge him the son of the creator of the world in other words they aren't it's the affirmation of the apostolic truth that is a criteria of the validity of a sacrament at this point in history and you know we we look back um, when he was actually kind of going through some of these early heretics the nicolaitans and Simon Magus and all that. These were members of the apostolic circle at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of them was probably ordained a deacon anyway, we know. Yeah. And so um, as they move on, they broke fellowship with the apostolic circle. And yeah. as their sacraments are, well, they're invalid, um, partly for that, partly because, of course, the theology that they've adopted, the her- heretical theology they've adopted. Yeah, I would almost say that at the time he wouldn't say that it's invalid because they've broken union with the Bishop of Rome, but they've broken union with the apostolic faith. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's more the way. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that what developed later was wrong, or that, but, that, but at the point in time, that is the issue. Are you, are you in union with the apostolic faith? faith. And he says earlier, how do you know if you're in union with the apostolic faith? Because you're in union with with the Church of Rome. Yeah. Which was, it's because that is the church founded by Peter and Paul. And so there's that, you know, the, the connection. All right, Monsignor. That's very good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my fourth point is on, on paragraph five at the bottom of page 360. Uh, this is one of the most famous passages in against heresies, and uh, I'll just read it. I'll read this in our in our translation that we have, and then I want to give it a more modern reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. How do they say then that the flesh passes into corruption and partakes not of life? which is nourished by the Lord's body and his blood. Either let them change their opinion or decline, either let them change their opinion or decline to make the offerings which I have mentioned. But our opinion is in harmony with the Eucharist and the Eucharist again confirms our opinion. Now that in paragraph 1327 in the Catechism of Catholic Church, this is quoted. And it's just a little bit clearer translation. Um, He doesn't use the word opinion here. Um, The Catechism says our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. So, you know, his point of course is that what we believe about the incarnation of Jesus Christ is what we believe about the Eucharist. What we believe about the resurrection of the body is contained in what we believe about the Eucharist and they, and vice versa. And one other thing I'll throw in on this point is in the catechism, there was a, I noticed in paragraph 1124, um, it cites this as well. It, it, it cites this text of Irenaeus, and it says, 
that the liturgy is a constitutive element of the holy and living tradition. I thought you'd enjoy that one. Yeah. Um, you well, know, that you can't you can't separate liturgy and, and the apostolic tradition. It may, reminds me of something that is um, I talked about in the most recent uh, episode of the Deep in Scripture program, in which I am reflecting a little bit more. As I in two weeks I've reflected in the same passages, but Philippians chapter four, four through nine. But specifically, Paul says in Philippians four, eight, and nine, he says this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think Mm -hmm. about these things. Not all that other junk that's out there. You think about these things. Okay, well, wait a second. If I'm to think about these things, wait a second, with all these voices, how do I know? Whatever is true. How do I know what, what is honorable, what is just or righteous, what is pure, what is lovely, what is gracious, excellent, or worthy of praise? Of all these opinions, how am I going to know what's true? And then Paul goes on. He says, well, okay, here's how you're going to know what's true. He basically says that. He says, Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, that's what you do. Well, how can Paul have the audacity to point to himself? Well, who is Paul? He's an apostle. He's been sent. He's talking about that he he recognizes that when our Lord chose him after the Lord's ascension— He chose him to be one sent. Well, he's one of those to whom he gave the apostolic deposit of faith. So how do you know what's true and honorable and just and all that stuff? The apostolic deposit of faith. And as you just said, if you go back to that, our opinion is in harmony with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist again confirms our opinion. Or as you said, the translation... Our way of thinking, thinking, cutting through all the stuff to think on what's true and all that is the Eucharist, is a part of that tradition that helps us know what is true and honorable and just and pure and holy and gracious and beautiful. That, that's how you know, you cut through. And you just mentioned, it's a part of that. It's not an yeah. add-on. You know, and I just think, you know, as I look back up, you know, my, things I had to overcome in my own life. Christianity is not something that's all up here. It's not an intellectual thing. Um, and the, the liturgy become, is so essential in terms of making the connection um, with the apostolic deposit of faith. It, it yeah. can't be just simply thought out. It has to be experienced in the liturgy. And, uh, you know, the church has that wonderful expression, uh, lex orandi, lex credendi. Um, basically, that's what Irenaeus is saying here. The law of, of prayer, law of belief are, um, are related to each other. 
Well, Marcus, the last point I wanted to make following up on that is um, because, you know, he's saying um, that he is, he's saying that our, our opinion is in accord with the Eucharist and the Eucharist is in accord with our opinion. He gives us an example of that um, over on page 361. Um, it really, it's, we're still in section five. It's at the top there. Um, we offer to him the things which are his own, showing forth accordingly our communion and union and professing a resurrection of flesh and spirit. That is that as bread from the earth, receiving the summons of God is no longer common bread, but a Eucharist composed of two things, both earthly and a heavenly one. So also our bodies partaking of the Eucharist are no longer corruptible, having the hope of eternal resurrection. Well, what we have here then is, is you is Irenaeus basing um, the, our belief, our conviction in the resurrection of the human body mm. on the fact that the body, this body has been nourished by the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, you know, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church on paragraph 1000 cites Irenaeus here, our participation in the Eucharist already gives us a foretaste of Christ's transfiguration of our bodies. So the Eucharist and the resurrection of the, of, of the flesh are, are absolutely related to each other, St. Irenaeus is saying here. It's, it's interesting that it would have been appropriate for um, Irenaeus to quote from John chapter 6. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in other words, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, has eternal life. He who eats my bread and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Um, truly, truly, I say we do, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So I mean, that all comes together yeah. in what Irenaeus is yeah. saying is the teaching of the church at, at the time he's writing. It wasn't just something that was added later during medieval, you, you know, scholastic arguments. This was a part of the core of the apostolic deposit of faith. Marcus, may I ask you a question just for fun? Uh oh, yes. <laughs> okay, I what do you think is meant um, at the in this section? Um, he's talking about the Eucharist. That expression, receiving the summons of God, is no longer common bread, but a Eucharist composed of two things. What what is the summons of God there? The bread from the earth, receiving the summons of God, is no longer. Oh, when I read that, what I was assuming were the words of constitution of uh, the of words of uh, of institution of institution. Right. That's what yeah. I was assuming. Yeah, he meant. 
And well, you're right. Um, but it's a little more complicated, if you will. Yeah. I, I just kind of jumped over this when I first read it and I went and did a little bit of work on this and, um, I, the Greek is pretty interesting here. Hmm. The summons of God, um, that, that Keeble uses or Pusey uses here. Um, Keeble, I mean, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these were, these are in my early life. These two guys were so related to each other. The, the Greek uh, Irenaeus is, uses here is proslabomenos um, tain epiklesen to theu, epiklesis. Um, now that has very significant, great significance for liturgical theology. Um, the epiklesis in the in um, uh, in the Eucharistic rite is. When well, you call a, down, it, yeah, it, yeah, it's call calling down the Spirit of God to consecrate this bread and this wine, and um, the Latin, the old Latin rite, um, basically the whole of the Eucharistic prayer was, it, it was had this epiclesis character to it, but like if we're looking, if you look at um, prayer two and prayer three in the Roman Missal now, um, they're more in conformity with the more Eastern tradition where the priest holds his hands over the gifts and prays that prayer um, that the spirit will descend and consecrate these gifts of bread and wine. And it's a, in, in liturgical theology, this whole question of epiclesis and what is the exact point in the Eucharistic prayer where the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ um, that gets that gets worked out later. Irenaeus is not interested in that question at all. But what what I think I'm reading here is this is one of the most one of the earliest passages we have of um, the specifically specific witness to um, the fact that the Eucharist is transformed into the body and blood of Christ through the prayer of the bishop or the priest um, joining is, with the prayer of Christ. I, I'm thinking that, and I may be wrong here, I'm thinking that's kind of alluded to in Justin's yeah, description. It is. We have some of that, yeah. And we'll find, um, if we were just to jump up a few years more, St. Hippolytus, we have an a specific epiclesis in his apostolic tradition that, that he uses. But uh, this is, this is Johannes Quaston's great work on uh, metrology. He, he points this out as one of the um, most significant early witnesses to um, uh, some serious Eucharistic theology going on in the early church. But also what you're pointing out from your little research there is that the phrase receiving the summons of God, that Keeble, that's his Keeble's translation. Yeah, Keeble. yeah. Uh -huh. Beneath that is the word epiclesis. That's right. So Keeble avoided it. Keeble avoided it. I'm not sure why, because, I mean, he's, the, the, you know, the text is pretty clear. Epi epiclesis, 
Well, um, the 39 articles were, forbade the idea that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe Keeble, whose That's buddy Newman, point. whose buddy's Newman was already becoming too Catholic, and his other buddy yeah. Pusey was not wanting to become Catholic, and Keeble didn't become Catholic, that he translated in such a way that he avoided the issue of yeah. epiclesis. That's a really good point you make there, Marcus. Well, everyone, you're wondering why we gave you this translation. It's a, it's because it's a beautiful translation, but it allows us to bring up these kind of very interesting issues. <laughs> Thank you, Monsignor, for doing that yeah. research. Yeah. Let's close, if you will, this section with the last paragraph of this section on page 361, in which he says, In the same way that as he, being in no need of those things, it wills them to be done by us for our own sake, that we be not unfruitful. So this same word gave unto the people the precept of making oblations, though he needed them not, that they might learn to serve God. And so accordingly, he will have us also to offer our gift at the altar very often without ceasing which is what we do, Monsignor, yeah. in Mass. All right. Monsignor, would you close us in prayer, if you would? Okay, thank you. Blessed Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Eucharist, for the way that St. Irenaeus has laid it out for the Church, for us to understand more deeply. And in this time uh, where so many people have have struggled to have the opportunity to receive the Blessed Sacrament, uh, we pray that uh, these opportunities will be given and that people will be able to enjoy and, and benefit again from the, the privilege of receiving the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Uh... Next week, we're going to pick up on page 361, and we're going to look at chapter 19. And I'm not sure how far we'll go, but we're going to start beginning with the question of the use of types, typology. And then we'll go on from there. So God bless you all. Look forward to being with you next week. God bless you. Take care. Thank you, Monsignor.